pray with me as we continue in worship together? Father, you are good, and we give you praise and thanks for your goodness. Father, we praise you for your word, and we have sung the truths of your word. We have prayed the truths of your word. We have celebrated around the table the beauty of the word become flesh who died for us. God, as we turn now to study the truth of your word, the Bible, I pray that you would guard our hearts from distraction, that you would guard error from my lips so that what I say, Lord, would lead us to hear what you desire we hear, to see the truth that is, that is contained within the pages of this book so that we might know you as you are rather than as we desire you to be. We ask these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Josh would like to come and speak to you just a moment, but we're going to save that for next week. Am I on? Gavin, have we got me on? I want to make sure you can hear me. Am I unmuted? There I am. Okay, just want to make sure. I like to hear myself. And if I can't hear myself, I know you can't hear myself. And so I just wanted to make sure. Josh is going to come and share with us next week. Just a word of thanks to you, his church family. But in light of the time, I asked him if he'd hold on to that word of thanks until next week. But if you have your Bibles this morning, would you please open them with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And this morning we return to our examination of the God of the Bible as he has so revealed himself in the pages of this book, Scripture. For as we've established Thus far, it would be foolish for us to assume to know God's character through personal observation or mere opinion, because while this may appeal to the scientific sensibilities among us, reflecting an Enlightenment-era hubris, guys, guys, we all know how just how dangerous this knowing really can be, don't we? And how many of us, and I'm not going to embarrass any of us by asking you to raise your hands, but how many of us were ever attracted to a beautiful young woman? You may have even dated her for a time because you believed, we believed, based upon our observations, that she was the one. This girl was the one. From all that we could see, she was it. She liked what we liked. She was easy on the eyes and appeared to be absolutely drop-dead perfect, right? But then you spent some time with this dream woman, and who she really was began to reveal itself. And lo and behold, you discovered that your CIA-level reconnaissance had somehow failed. You know, either you got your files mixed up or the agents that you were dealing with had double-crossed you because the beauty that you had thought she were dating was beginning to look, dare I say it, more like the beast, right? And ladies, I know that, I, I'm, that this form of failure to know isn't limited to just us guys, is it? I mean, you remember when you said yes to that Mr. Dreamy? He was perfect, wasn't he? He was perfect, or at least as close to perfection as you imagined was possible. But then you woke up next to the man, and all these habits began to reveal themselves that you'd never known he had. In all your studious observation of this man's character, you never dreamed he had the flaws that your first year of marriage revealed. Am I right? I know it's true in my own home. I know it's true in yours. Now, if we cannot possibly know those whom we love the most through mere observation, why would we ever begin to think that we could know God in this way? This is why, when we, this is why we turn to the scriptures in which God has all sufficiently revealed himself that we may know him. And to this end, if you were with us two weeks ago, then you'll remember how we examined God's self 
revelation in the scriptures of his presence, thus establishing the fact that he exists. He, he isn't an idea or a concept or the opiate of the masses, if you will, for he physically appeared to Moses, demonstrating that, that he has an intimate relationship to his creation. He is imminent in his creation, and yet he is still distinct from his creation. The God of the Bible has presence, but we also experienced how he can speak. He spoke to Moses verbally, audibly, comprehensibly, and purposefully. The truths of God's presence and ability to speak were our focus two weeks ago. Today, as I promised then, if you were with us, we're going to encounter two further truths. And so, if your Bibles are open to Exodus 3, let me encourage you to follow along as we have our examination of God's self-revelation continue, beginning with verse 16 of chapter 3. This is where Moses records the Lord's words to this end. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, and any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold, and for clothing with which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. And may God bless the public reading of his word. So as God continues to destroy all of Moses' divine misconceptions or presuppositions, if you will. He makes it clear that he is a God who can see. Yahweh is a God who can see. He sees. In verse 16, our NIV reads, I have watched over you and have seen. If you have the ESV translation it offers, I have observed you. While the Holman provides, I have paid close attention to you. And what I love about these different translations is how they enrich our understanding of the truth that God is revealing here. Because, and this is just an aside for us this morning, but if you remember, our God is without limits. And we saw two weeks ago, His presence is unlimited. But as we know, all of us know, language is limited, isn't it? And, and so for this reason, when people have sought to render God's original words in English or any other language for that matter, there have always been multiple options. And so I encourage you, church, whenever you're studying the scriptures, read the passage under scrutiny in multiple versions, like the NIV. And, and here, if you can find the 85 version, I would encourage it. The King James or the NASB, the Holman, the ESV, each of these is an accurate translation and it will serve to enrich your understanding of the truths being revealed, which in this case for us today is the fact that God sees. God sees. Yahweh is a God who sees. And before anybody blurts that, well, so what's the big deal with that? I can see, Andrew. What, what, what makes it so special that God can see? So let's distinguish God's seeing then from that which we are all capable of as human beings. And I believe there are at least three ways or three things that we can note here. First of all, God's seeing is not subjective. 
God's seeing is not subjective, meaning that God doesn't view things as he simply wants them to be. God sees things as they truly are. So here in the Midian desert, God informed Moses that he had seen his people's misery. God saw Israel's situation for what it was, slavery. And from an Israelite's perspective, life was suffering. It was terrible. Their daily experiences were defined by it. However, from Pharaoh's perspective, this was just the way things were, right? Had always been. There was nothing wrong in Pharaoh's eyes with slavery as the status quo. For the Egyptians, their slaves sustained their economy and their way of life, and thus it was, it was a good thing, right? Now, I realize, thankfully, that when we read these verses today, we immediately appreciate the immorality of Pharaoh's perspective. Slavery is wrong. The oppression and, and, and abuse of our fellow human beings based upon ethnicity or any other distinction is terribly wrong. But friends, let's not miss the fact that the reason that we see things in this way today is because our vision has come to more closely reflect that of God's. He has always viewed his creation in this way. He doesn't see things subjectively. He sees them as they are. And Emmanuel, this is of immense importance for us because it means that whenever God describes what he sees in the scriptures, whenever he describes what he sees in the scriptures, we can know that what he is describing is true. It's truth. So when God described the sinful behavior of his people, they had no excuse. And so neither do we. Meaning God's description and his consequent condemnation of sin, be it sexual or or practical, ethical, whatever, it couldn't be excused as a culturally or historically influenced perspective that thankfully today is no longer relevant. No, God's sight isn't subjective. And then a second way that God's seeing differs from ours is that his seeing isn't inhibited. God's seeing is not inhibited. As human beings, we can only see the objects off of which light reflects, and, and that to a limited extent, depending on how weak your eyes may be. If they're like mine, very weak. Our vision is inhibited, such that while I can see you right now, the moment that you leave the room, as Jimmy just did, you can, you're gone. I can't see you. you know, and further, for those of you that I can see in this room, I can only see the parts of your person that are reflecting light. And I can only see you in this moment, right? The present. My vision is inhibited by time, by space, and by substance, but not God's. God is unlimited, and therefore he's not locked into time. Our God isn't confined by space or bound to substance. And friends, what this then means for us is that there is nothing that God cannot see, past, present, or future. We can't hope to hide ourselves, our weaknesses, motivations, even our will from God. For as he informed the prophet Samuel during his examination of Jesse's sons as he was selecting Israel's first king, man looks at the outward appearance, right? Meaning man or people's sight is inhibited, but the Lord looks at the what? Heart. Yahweh looks at the heart. In church, God's seeing is not inhibited, and therefore we can't fool him. We can't deceive God into thinking that, that we're something that we're not. We can't pull the wool over God's eyes, so to speak, and, and lead him into believing that something is which isn't. God's seeing isn't subjective, nor is it inhibited or dependent. God's seeing is not dependent. Our eyes depend on light to see, 
You know, no light, no sight, right? But not so with God. He sees everything like we talked about with the kids. The physical, which is all around us. The emotional, he sees, which exudes from us. And the spiritual, which transcends us. God's sight is not dependent. And friends, I know that this point, it may seem obvious to some. It may seem redundant to others based on what we just said in the point prior. But how often do we find ourselves seeking out darkness in order to engage in activities that we would never consider in the light? When do we most often indulge our appetites in unwholesome ways? You know, how like a child are we in this? I remember when Elena was little, and not to pick on one of my three children, so we'll generalize it, when all of them were little, but Elena's the one for this analogy. We lived in Birmingham, as many of you know, and our house had a staircase directly behind the front door, and it was out of sight from the living room. And any time Melinda or I would tell Elena that she couldn't play with one of her toys or something, she made a beeline for that little stairwell. And she went right up those little stairs and she sat down because in her mind, you can't see me. You don't know what I'm doing, right? Guys, the God of the Bible can see such that there is nothing we can hide. Now, this may seem unimaginably scary at first, but let me tell you, it is eternally liberating. Because here's what it means. It means that as His children, we don't have to pretend to be that which we aren't. The outworking of this then is that we at Emmanuel Baptist Church, we don't practice religion here. We don't come and fill seats on a Sunday in order to keep up appearances because we know that we can't fool the God whom we've come to worship. Now, we can fool one another, given, and sadly there may be some who have chosen to imprison themselves in the darkness of self-supposed deception. But they're the only ones who lose out. We desire to be a family, a faith family that lives in light of the truth that God sees everything. Thus, as the Apostle John described in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 7, we attempt to live in the light just as God is in the light, that we may have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. God can see. So we've observed God's revelation of himself that he can see. And we've noted how God's vision differs from our own. But before we move on, I believe there's one further aspect of God's sight that we just can't afford to miss. And so would you look back with me in your Bible just briefly to verse 16? Exodus 3, verse 16. In the the words with which God informs Moses to speak to the elders, he declares, I have watched over you and have seen. I have watched over you and have seen. And what's What's revealing about this lengthy phrase is that it it translates a single term in the original language of the Old Testament and one that clearly communicates more than just vision, sight. This word here and its cognates communicate vision, visiting, inspecting, looking at, seeing, commanding, summoning, appointing, mustering, avenging, and afflicting. All of those words. And What I believe then that God was revealing here to the people of Israel was both the intimacy and the intensity of his seeing. Meaning God's observation of Israel wasn't like the passing glance that we often give to the guy who stands under the bridge near the park with his sign promising God's blessing if you give him money. No, God's eyes didn't rove over Israel's situation like mine used to do when I'd walk in at home and my girls would be watching Angelina Ballerina. No. God's observation, friends, of his people 
is a longing. It's a lasting look of passion. It's the look of a lover for their beloved. It's the look that we read about in the Song of Songs. The seeing that's described here is intimate, and it reflects the personal nature of God's relationship with his creation. That's a point, if you remember, we established two weeks ago. So I believe that God's observing of his people demonstrates the intimacy of the relationship he desires to have with them. It also reveals the intensity of God's look, meaning we're not describing here some, some dreamy-eyed, head-over-heels, high school infatuation, silly fool stare. No, these are the eyes of the father of the high schoolers, deeply concerned about their, father, their daughter's safety, or their mother's look concerned about their son's activities, a husband's passionate concern for the protection of his bride. Guys, how our hearts should soar at the knowledge that God's eyes look upon us deeply, completely, and constantly. There's not a moment that we may find ourselves in a dead zone. God's vision isn't like the cell phone coverage that I experienced with Melinda this past weekend while we were in, in, in Louisville, Kentucky at Will's wedding. We were trying to find a way to get to worship last Sunday so that we could worship with God's people. And the pastor, singles minister of the church where Will and Jess attend, very generously loaned us his truck only he loaned us his truck with an eighth of a tank of gas, and we were a, a, an hour away from Louisville in an area where we had absolutely no cell coverage. It was a very generous man. He told us that Sunday when we got there that it was a miracle, and he'd woken up at 4.30 and realized what he'd done to us. Uh, we graciously left him with a full tank of gas. However, that's not how God's observation works, friends. He observes us intimately, and he watches us intensely such that he always knows us perfectly. Did you know that the God of the Bible sees in this way? I don't believe that Moses did, which is why God revealed himself in this manner. For Moses, his exposure to all of Egypt's gods and goddesses, I believe it's likely he understood God's vision to be like that of the gods of Egypt. Maybe the Egyptian god Ra or Amun or, or Mentu, each of whom possessed the human attribute of sight coupled with all of its limitations. Egypt's gods could, on, could see, they could see, but only subjectively. They could watch, but only inhibited. And they could observe, but only dependently. And thus, they could not see like Yahweh sees. Church, our God can see. And the God of the Bible makes promises. The God of the Bible makes promises. Would you look back there to our text and find verse 17, it's there that God declares, And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. In this statement, I believe that God is reminding Israel's elders of his promise made many, many years earlier to their forefather Abraham. If you were to look back in Genesis 13, it's there that Abraham, who was still called Abram at that stage, and his nephew Lot decided to part ways. Their flocks had grown, if you recall the story. Their herdsmen had begun to argue, and so Abram allows Lot to select his land, the land where he would settle, and Lot chose the plain of Judah while Abram lived in Canaan. And at this point, the Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes from where you are and look to the north, the south, east, and west, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk the land, for I am giving it to you. So God promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan, the same land that we see referenced to Moses here in Exodus, the verse that we just read. And so God renewed this promise, this Abrahamic promise in Genesis 15 and verse 7, where the word of the Lord came to Abram, declaring, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And then again, later, God renews this promise to Abraham's son Isaac. Following Abraham's death, there was a severe famine that struck the land and unsure of what to do. Genesis 26 tells us that the Lord appeared to Isaac and, it said, and he said, and then remember, we saw two weeks ago God's appearance and his speaking. So God's presence and his ability to speak. The Lord appears and he says, don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So God promised Abraham a land, and then he renewed this promise to Isaac, and again to Isaac's son Jacob, because if you recall, Yahweh introduced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And in Genesis 28, Jacob has this dream. It's there that he later names this place Bethel, or Bethel, meaning God's house, in which the Lord says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So if God's, if God's promise had ended here, then I believe at this point we would still have enough evidence to establish the significance of God's words to Moses. The land referenced in Exodus 3, we've just read, is clearly the same land as was promised by God to Abraham and then again to Isaac as well as to Jacob. However, God wasn't done speaking to Jacob at Bethel because if you were to look back and read verse 15, you read this promise. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. Isn't that cool? Now, for those familiar with Jacob's story, Jacob promptly leaves Canaan and goes to Patamaran, the land where his ancestors lived, and he remains there some 20 years. But then some two chapters later, two wives, a bunch of kids, sheep, goats later, Genesis 31, God directs Jacob back to Canaan where he remains until chapter 46 of Genesis. And it's there facing years of famine that we discover God's already provided for Jacob through his own son, that's Jacob's son, Joseph, whom he, that's God, sent to Egypt to prepare a place for Jacob and all of his descendants. And so in Genesis 46, God spoke to Jacob, whom he'd renamed at this stage Israel. And he says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Again, God makes a promise to Jacob, but not a new promise as we've seen, simply a restating of an original promise to provide a place, a land, a home for a particular people upon whom God had placed his hand of blessing and protection. And between God's words there to Jacob, recorded in Genesis 46, and then those that we're examining today in Exodus 3, some 400 years had passed, during which time the Israelites were fruitful as God had promised, they multiplied greatly. They became exceedingly numerous. And so that, like God's promise, they had become like the dust. 
The land, we're told, was filled with them, but their circumstances had changed, hadn't they? This new king had come to the throne of Egypt who didn't know Joseph and all that he had done for Egypt. And so this Pharaoh began to oppress the Israelites. Under this Pharaoh, the Egyptians' attitudes towards the Israelites changed. He ordered the death of all infant boys. He forced the midwives to do his bidding. Under Pharaoh, we know that the Israelites suffered greatly. They cried out for mercy. They prayed for help. And God listened. Despite the great distance in both time and space between God's words to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he appears to Moses and once again restates his promise to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Church, the God of the Bible makes promises. And to this end, I'd like us to know two things regarding God's promises. Two things, with the first being this, God's promises are consistent. God's promises are consistent. You notice how, and, and we just pointed this out, but you notice how God's promise to Abraham was renewed with consistency to Isaac, and then again to Jacob, and then even to Moses. You know, over the course of generations, God's promise to bless all nations is consistently renewed. With surprise, surprise, the man's descendants to whom it had been promised, and with surprise, surprise, the same content, it doesn't change. God, God doesn't change his promises from one generation to another. God doesn't promise one thing today and then another thing tomorrow. His promises are consistent, not contradictory. And that's what I believe we discover here in God's words to Moses. The truth that God's promises are consistent. And Emmanuel, how, how wonderful is the thought that the God of the Bible's promises are consistent. How reassuring for us to know that the promise to bless, to protect, to work all things together for good, to provide us with hope, doesn't differ in degree one person to another. For if they reflected variance, could we believe them? And if so, on what basis could we believe them? If I promised my wife that I'd be home for dinner on Monday night at 6, but then I promised to meet you for coffee at the same time, what would you conclude? If you saw me two days later, you'd realize I went home and had dinner with my wife at six, right? No, but clearly, my promises are empty, or at least one of them is, right? But which one? And if we say, well, whichever one you fail to fulfill, well, then how until I fail to fulfill one would you know which one? And the answer is clearly we wouldn't know which one, right? Which would make the value of my words worthless. For the promise we give is intended to inspire hope, right? Not cause confusion. Church, God's promises are consistent, thus when we read them in the scriptures, we can know the hope that they are intended to provide. And we can experience the certainty that they aim to inspire. God's promises are consistent, but his promises are also constant. God's promises are constant, and by this I mean that they don't have an expiration date. It's not like a yogurt that's been sitting in the office's refrigerator for a long time. Unlike any promises that I make, which are limited to the length of time that I have been allotted to fulfill them, God's promises are like his person. They are eternal. His promise to Abraham wasn't fulfilled in its entirety during Abraham's lifetime, was it? Nor that of Isaac or of Jacob for that matter. But just because Abraham didn't live to see God's promised blessing didn't mean that God's promise ceased or God's promise became void. Rather, I believe it revealed the constant character of both the God who made the promise and the promise itself. And church, 
We live in a day where little is constant, is it? People make promises that almost, in almost every sphere of life, sports, politics, education, finance, and none of them are constant. Our financial advisors on television promise that we'll have enough, if we have enough saved, then when it comes time to retire, we can, we can live without fear. But do we know this to be a fact? Our doctors promise that if we eat right, rest well, exercise, then we'll live a long time. But seriously, who believes that? Clearly not those of you who are going to the island creamery, right? And, and don't, our politicians promise that we're making America great again. But do we even need to comment on the empty promise that? The God of the Bible makes promises that are like his character, constant. They don't change. They don't cease to be because he never will. He is always the same. Therefore, we can cling to his promises. So God's promises are consistent. God's promises are constant. And then there's a third thing. God's promises are all fulfilled in Christ. God's promises are all fulfilled in Christ. I noticed that there's two things that we were going to see in regards to God's promises. So this one's free. But this church is where all God's promises point. This is the culmination of the whole story. For in the story of Exodus, what I believe we see and we realize is that we've, we've, and we've just managed to get through that first half of chapter 3. But what I believe we see is the preliminary of the story of God's rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt and then delivering them into the promised land of Canaan. And in this story of God's passion, of his provision and protection, we are given glimpses of the coming blessing that God promised to all peoples and who would come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a blessing that would be wholly consistent, perfectly constant, like us in every way, and yet distinctly divine. With the coming of Jesus Christ, God fulfilled his promise to rescue his people, and he continues the fulfillment of that promise today, church, as he saves all who believe in Jesus from their bondage of sin and their slavery to death. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, for he is God's son. Do you know him this morning? You know, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he is the rescuer, and we are those in need of rescuing. And so like the Israelites in Exodus, we can't save ourselves. We, we are helpless in the face of our enemy, and we can do nothing but cry out for mercy. And if this is how you feel this morning. Would you hear God's words once more? I have watched over you, and I have seen what has been done to you. God sees you, everything about you, and despite your undeserving and wretched state, he declares, I have promised, he still declares, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery. I myself have promised to save you in the person of my son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, all you have to do is to admit your sin. Admit your inability to save yourself, to believe in Jesus as God's son and confess him as your Lord and you will be free, free today. So I'd like to close and pray in conclusion and pray that God would graciously save one or more today, anyone this morning who is like the Israelites and finds themselves facing a future that is unknown, a future that is constantly forcing them into fear and to doubt and uncertainty. I want to pray that God would provide you with healing and freedom that can only be found in his son Jesus. So would you pray with me as we close? Father God, we are all as these Israelites described in the scriptures. At one point, Father, we were all lost. 
captives to sin. Father, we could not free ourselves. We tried all manner of things. We, we tried to be good enough. We tried to acquire enough. We tried to, to find enough love from others. And we all know how that went. It left us hurting, frustrated, empty, filled with fear at the future because we recognized that we could not do anything to change our circumstances. But then we heard the gospel, that you had done all of these things for us. Father, I pray that if there's one this morning, anyone this morning, who has not come to this great freeing truth, that today, God, you would do, you would do that work in their lives, that you would bring them to a place of recognition of sin, of their need for you, that they would admit that, Father, that they would believe that you are the Son of God. And Lord Jesus, they would claim you as their Lord. Lord, and this is simple as having this conversation with you right now. Father, would you do that which only you can do and that which you have promised to do, which is to save for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.